try too hard to rush forgiveness. That's what I want to talk about on today's edition of the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast, the time where we think about marriage more as a passionate adventure and less as a giant to-do list. And today I want to talk about how to get that intimacy back and how to get that passion back when there's been a big problem in your marriage that does need forgiveness. And the problem is I don't think that we always talk about forgiveness in a really healthy way. We often try to rush it. We often say it in a very formulaic way. We'll tell Christians, you know, just as God forgave you, so you need to forgive each other, which is definitely in the Bible, but it's not as simple as that. And I don't think that God ever meant it to be something that we rush through and we just tick off our list. I think he meant it to be a deep thing that we do understanding the severity of what happened and in wisdom as we walk forward knowing the best way that we should handle the relationship now. So let's talk about that. Now this isn't really what I've been talking about on the blog lately, but I don't want to keep the podcasts as exactly what we're talking about in the blog because sometimes that can get a little bit repetitious. And so this is a theme that keeps coming up in some emails that people are sending me, especially about how to forgive after affairs. So I did think this was a good one to tackle. Let's say that someone is hurt really badly. Maybe it's sexual abuse in your past, maybe some other kind of abuse, maybe a huge betrayal like an affair. And then often they go to counselors, they go to their pastor, and what they're told is the only way to heal is to forgive that person. In fact, God demands that you forgive. If you don't forgive them what they did to you, then God can't forgive you. I find that really harsh. Because now suddenly the person who was the victim is now cast as being the person who is in the wrong just because they're struggling to forgive. And then even as they're struggling with this huge hurt and this huge trauma that they felt, they now feel that God is also mad at them because they can't get over it. So not only do they feel distant from God because of the hurt, now the guilt pushes them away from God too. I don't think that's ever what God intended. Let me take you back to my teenage years. I struggled a lot when I was a teenager with forgiving my dad for leaving us and really for having very little to do with me as I was growing up. I saw him for about a week a year and I remember one year he was even too busy for that. He lived on the other side of the country from me. It required a five hour plane ride to get there. And so we really just didn't see each other. And at the same time, as a teenager, I was working in a Christian bookstore. And so I had all of these Christian books in front of me, and I would read all of these books on how I needed to forgive, and I would pray all the time about how to forgive him, and it never seemed to work. Whenever I saw my dad, I would get these stomach pains, and it was really difficult. I'll tell you, it got way worse when the kids were born because I felt such an all-consuming love for them. I couldn't bear to be away from them. And that's when it really hit me. How could my father have wanted to be away from me? How could he have borne that? Sometimes he would visit for a few hours when he had a stopover in Toronto on his way to a conference. uh, And he'd ask if I could bring the kids to the airport to see him. And afterwards, my stomach would ache for several weeks. When Katie was two, we moved to Belleville, which is where we live now, which is a smaller town. And I joined a church, which was fairly close to me. First time in my life, I didn't have to take a massive subway ride to get to church. And I started attending a women's Bible study. And for the first time, I did these really in-depth studies of several scriptural themes. I even started teaching some of the studies. That's where I got started with everything that I'm doing now. Our marriage was getting super strong around that point. Our life wasn't quite as busy because Keith was working less, and I loved just being with my kids. And one day my dad came to visit, and it was just a stopover on his way through to Ottawa, 
And I realized after he left that I hadn't been angry and that my stomach hadn't hurt. Somehow, in those years of doing all of those Bible studies, I had managed to forgive my dad without really trying. Instead of crying and praying about forgiveness, I had spent several years just focused on Jesus. And Jesus changed me. I learned from that the truth that whatever we focus on expands. When we stare at the hurts in our lives, it's really hard to get over them. But when we focus on Jesus, it's often much easier. Now, none of this means that we shouldn't seek counseling for big hurts. I think that is a really necessary step. It's just that we should also seek to simply know God. And when we grow in Christ, he changes us and this enables us to forgive. And when my dad died uh, last year, I was able to spend his last days with him with no anger and no bitterness, because I was changed a long time ago, and that really was a wonderful gift. I read a quote when I was thinking about this after my dad passed away that, that was talking about forgiveness, and the guy was saying that the process of forgiveness is often something that we discover has happened in our lives over time, rather than something that is being forced, or just a one-time decision that we make. And John Patton, who's the one saying all this, he's a Columbia Theological Seminary professor, asks the question, perhaps forgiveness is a byproduct of healing rather than being the source of healing. And I want to say that again because I really think this is brilliant. Perhaps forgiveness is a byproduct of healing rather than the source of healing. And that's really what occurred with me. You know, one day I woke up and I realized that forgiveness had happened within me. And it had happened because I had been healed. Now, as we know more about God and focus more on Him, He changes us on the inside. As we learn more of God's character, we realize that He's angry about the abuse, betrayal, and abandonment too. And we see that God understands. As we learn that God understands, we learn that He cries with us, that we're never alone. As we understand that truth, that we are never alone, that we are deeply valued by God, we allow God to start defining who we are, and we stop giving that power to others. And as we are able to see ourselves as precious to God, we become more confident. We stop looking inward, and we start looking outward. Our lives become a lot bigger. The hurt is no longer the focus of our lives. And as the hurt is no longer the focus, we find it easier to look at it and to let it go. We have something else to live for now. So yes, forgiveness is a choice that we do make, and we need to decide to turn away from bitterness. But rushing this process before we have truly gone to God and make these realizations simply buries pain. Do you remember a couple of years ago when the Duggar abuse scandal broke and it came out that Josh Duggar had abused his little sisters and this, everyone was scandalized, but the Duggar said, well, you don't need to worry about it because the girls forgave him long ago because we took them through this forgiveness process. And I remember being so uncomfortable with that position that they were saying because some of those girls were as young as six at the time. And When we're six, we don't even know the ramifications of what was done to us because that's going to come up again and again and again in your life. As you hit puberty and your body changes, the first time you get a crush on a boy, uh, when you get married, when you have children of your own, you know, these traumas often come up again and again and again. And that's when God has to do a deeper 
act of healing. It's not something that just goes away because we have magically said the words, I forgive you. We have to allow the healing process to go forward. And here's how the process works. No matter what the pain, healing happens when our mind and our spirit is able to see the event with the same perspective that God does and when we develop the mind of Christ. So having our mind see it in God's way is an act of will on our part, but having our spirit sense it in the same way is an act of healing on God's part. It's not really about just saying, I'm not going to hold this against you. It's about the why. The reason I'm not holding this against you is because I see the incident now the way that God does. I see that God was angry. I see that I was not alone. I see that there is justice. I see that Jesus paid for the sin that was done. I see that I am precious to God and it's God who defines my worth, not this thing that was done to me. Because I choose to see with a bigger perspective and that's now why I'm able to forgive you. So yes, it's an act of the will, but our forgiveness ultimately happens because we change our perspective and see what was done to us as God sees it. I wanted to forgive my dad as a teenager, and I wanted to let go of bitterness. And I do think that the act of will was important, but I don't think I was able to do that until I grew in Christ. And so that is absolutely necessary. But there's another aspect that's also necessary. And I'm not sure if you heard that as I said the story, but I said it a few times, is that I was able to see the incident now as God does. Another way that we often try to rush forgiveness is we don't give people the time to truly see what was done to them. This is where, especially when there's been sexual abuse in your past and there really has been some trauma, you know, we need to confront what was actually done. When there's been an affair in your marriage, we need to confront what was actually done. And I think that's why this rush to forgiveness can take another form. Sometimes it's the rush to forgiveness that says you're not a good Christian if you don't forgive. But sometimes there's another rush to forgiveness. There's a rush that comes when you catch your husband doing something really bad, like an affair or porn use or something, and you are so quick to forgive because you're afraid that you're going to lose your marriage. You're afraid that you're going to, you're about to lose your husband, that everything is going to blow up. And so you desperately want to get things back the way they were. And so you say, no, 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 it's okay. I forgive. That's not appropriate either because you may say all the right words. You may say, I understand that God was with me and I understand this was a bad thing and, and I'm going to choose to see it in the way that God sees it and I'm going to let go of it. But if you aren't allowing yourself the time and the space to truly see what happened with God's eyes, you can't forgive. You can't forgive something that you have not admitted has happened. You have to see the severity of what was done. And often we're in such a rush to forgive that we don't allow ourselves the time to see that severity. Now, if we do both of those things, if we fully face it and we also throw ourselves into knowing Jesus, then we can have both that act of the will forgiveness and Jesus change our spirit forgiveness so that we truly are able to get over it and to move past it and to not have this impact our lives anymore. But forgiveness like this can be done completely on your own, all right? You can forgive your husband for having an affair. 
even if he has left you and divorced you and gone to live with the other woman. What you can't do is reconcile unless the other person also has taken steps to make amends, is a safe person, and has participated in this whole process with you. You can forgive someone. You can let it go. You can put it in Jesus' hands, regardless of what the other person chooses to do. But you cannot reconcile and rebuild a relationship by yourself. And this is another way that we are often rushed to forgive. Often, especially if you're in a counseling situation or, you know, talking to some friends about some major issue in your marriage, maybe he's had an affair, maybe he's used porn, and your husband says, well, I'm sorry, and that's all I can do. I am sorry. And so now it's up to her to forgive me. But I'm sorry doesn't cut it. Because the Bible doesn't only say that we're supposed to confess our sins. It says that we are supposed to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay, the other person, if they've done something wrong, you got to be sure that they are not doing that wrong thing anymore. They should have taken steps to show you that I am a safe person. It is not a good idea to rebuild trust with someone who isn't safe. And so that's going to mean putting controls on your phones or tablets or computers if it's a porn use situation, getting into an accountability group, uh, seeking out counseling to learn how to deal with your stress, which often drives people to porn. You know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to entail a number of different things. If it's an affair, it's going to involve cutting off all contact, um, letting you have open access to their text messages and phone, maybe even getting a new job if they if he knew her at a job, whatever it may be, we need to see some fruits in keeping with repentance. That's what reconciliation needs. And so those are three ways that we often rush forgiveness. We force ourselves to forgive, thinking that if I just say the right words, I will have forgiven without giving ourselves time to actually heal. And then we force ourselves to forgive without allowing ourselves to truly look at what is done to us. God can't heal us unless we're willing to confront our real pain. But then also, you can never reconcile one way. If someone has not truly confessed what they've done, if they haven't taken it seriously, and then if they haven't borne fruits of repentance, you can't necessarily reconcile that situation. Once those three things are in place, once you have confronted what was actually done, once the person has made steps to make amends, once you've allowed for some healing to take place, then if those three things are done, run forward in freedom. Please do not allow a past sin to keep you in bondage in your marriage. You can't build intimacy unless you're willing to let the past go. And I am talking about the past. I'm not talking about reconciling with someone who is still doing something wrong. But at some point, if we want to have a good marriage, we have to be willing to put this stuff behind us. Don't do that frivolously. Please do not rush it. But remember that once you've taken the time, once you've really looked at this stuff, once you've done the work of reconciliation, then the ball is ultimately in our court. Are you going to move forward? Can you move forward? I really hope you can. I believe that God is a God of reconciliation. I think that he he laughs when people are able to repair some of these deep hurts. And I pray that that can be the story of your marriage. We think of porn as a guy's problem, but increasingly girls are getting hooked on porn too. Think of porn's effect on teenage girls if porn becomes their sex ed. It's not just sons we have to protect, it's daughters too. If you have children at home, you need covenant eyes on your computers, devices, and phones. 
Learn more at CovenantEyes.com and use the coupon code TLHV to get your first month for free. Today's reader question is one where I probably fall out of the norm on a lot of marriage experts about this, but I don't actually believe that honesty is always the best policy. So let me read to you what this woman writes. My husband is a really good man. He's great in bed, very committed and faithful, great dad, kind, thoughtful husband. A while ago, he confessed to me that he has feelings of attraction for my best friend. He had talked to a mentor about it several months prior, which had taken care of those feelings. However, they resurfaced during a trip that we took with this couple. He shared with me that he felt it would be helpful if we could be completely honest with each other about our sexual temptations and asked if I agreed. I said yes, but I had no idea that he was about to tell me that his temptation was my best friend. I asked what it was about her. He mentioned some traits she had which are very different from mine. All of this really devastated me. He insists that he has guarded his thoughts very well, not fantasizing or allowing his thoughts to wander, and this is and that this is a normal thing that many couples face. He doesn't feel a need to limit our contact with this couple. We talked with some mentors and a Christian counselor, and the counselor agreed that there was nothing to be concerned about. He tried to explain the male sex drive to me and the difference between temptation and sin. I don't think I'm confused about the difference, but the fact that my husband is tempted by my friend is still terribly difficult for me. I feel a huge loss of confidence, low self-esteem, and anxiety around this friend, which is also a loss. I don't think she knows what's going on. I felt like I had kind of worked through it when recently I asked him about it again, and when he told me that nothing had really changed, I felt devastated. He feels like I'm misunderstanding him, yet when we try to talk about it so that I can understand, I don't feel any better. I feel like my normal meter is broken. What am I missing? How do I get over the anxiety and pain, and how do I thrive in my marriage again? Why did the guy tell her this? Like, I'm serious. Like, what What in the world made him think that this was a good idea to share with your wife? I, I wrote um, an article on 10 things that you shouldn't share with your spouse. And I'm going to link it in the blog post about this podcast. And I also wrote something a while ago on how honesty isn't always the best policy. You know, I do believe that when we're tempted by something outside of marriage, it is so important to get accountability. It looks like he did that. He had a mentor that he was talking to. He was praying through this. This was not something that he was going to act on. And he wasn't even fantasizing. So he did all the right things. What does he gain by telling his wife? I know that you can say, well, we're not supposed to keep things back because then we're not being truly intimate. But there's some things that are just so devastating. I'm not sure they're really worth sharing. I think if something has happened where you truly have broken a promise with someone, like if there has been an emotional or physical affair, then yes, you you share that. But if it's just an attraction thing, tell a friend, ask someone to hold you accountable, Pray about it, but then don't go talking to your spouse about it. It's not fair. And it sounds like, I, I mean, I might be reading between the lines here, um, but she says that he's attracted to traits that this woman has that she doesn't. Well, that could make her feel terrible about her body. Yeah, it says very clearly in Proverbs, it instructs a man to delight in your wife's breasts, okay, that that the breath, you know, your wife's breasts are what is supposed to turn you on. So this is on him. This is not on her. Like, and so you don't want her to start feeling body shame. And that's all that this is accomplishing. I think that we focus too much on how you can't have true intimacy without complete vulnerability, without realizing that, you know, there aren't always things that need to be shared. If you, if you have a temptation that you have truly brought before God and that you have truly dealt with in a proper way, 
I don't think that that needs to be shared with your spouse, unless it's a temptation that you truly need them to help you battle. Like, you know, if you're tempted by porn, for instance, and just having the internet accessible is, is really a problem to you, then saying to her something like, you know, I'm really worried I'm going to start watching porn. I think we need to get Kevin and I's on the computer. I mean, that, I think that's a different quality of thing, you know, because you're saying that, you know, this is a temptation that a lot of people have, and I don't want to participate in it, and I want to stay totally with you, and this is how I'm going to do it. That's a totally different thing than saying I am tempted by this particular person. So, you know, my advice would be, first of all, just don't share it. But what should she do now that he has shared it? I think it's really important that they start to rebuild here, and she just needs to have this conversation. Be really honest. Um, You have wrecked my confidence by telling me this. I was better off before you told me this. I'm glad that you're battling this. I'm glad that you're seeking out accountability, but I didn't need to know this. But now that we've, now that my confidence has been wrecked, we need to talk about how to rebuild it. And so they may need to go through a process of him assuring her that he really enjoys her body. They probably need to rebuild some trust and just become friends again. You know, look at having some new hobbies, try to emotionally connect more. But this is something that's big. And you're allowed to feel hurt by that. Yes, there is a difference between temptation and sin. Um, And just because that you notice someone is attractive does not mean that you are lusting after them. And so I agree with the counselor that this isn't necessarily something that she needs to worry about in in the fact that he might act on it. But again, I think that a lot of men misunderstand what this does to women. When we start hearing that our husbands are turned on by things other and people other than us, that does wreck your confidence. And I think that women should matter here. So guys, stop trying to get rid of your guilt by putting these bad feelings onto your wife, because that's all that happens. Okay, so he's feeling guilty for feeling tempted. And so he's telling his wife, but now she has to deal with all those bad feelings. Just stop it. Get some accountability. Talk to someone. Get real about your temptations. But not all temptations need to be shared with your spouse. You need to take this to God and ask, am I building up my marriage? Or am I simply trying to relieve myself of guilt and make myself feel holier? And if that's what you're doing, stop it and really try to honor your spouse. On the comment section of the podcast, I like to highlight a comment that's been left on social media or an email that's been sent in or a comment on the blog and just talk about it. And we had a really interesting discussion on Facebook a while ago when I posted this status on my page. I said, yes, some men struggle with lust, but not all men do. If you have never had any reason to doubt your husband, then don't. Sometimes we'll read things or hear things along the lines of all Christian men struggle with lust or it's every man's battle. We may also hear that guys will never, ever confess this to their wives. And so I'll get women saying to me, I always thought he was a good guy, but now I'm paranoid. What do I do? And my answer, you know your husband better than anyone. If he has never given you any reason to doubt, don't doubt. Certainly pray that if there is ever anything you need to know that God will reveal it to you, but then leave it with God and enjoy your marriage. I am a little bit worried that there's this thought going around in the Christian world that all guys lust and it is making women doubt husbands who actually don't struggle with this. And I also worry that we're misinterpreting a lot of that stat. You know, like you'll see a stat that says something like 70% of pastors use porn or whatever. But you know, when I did my surveys for the Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, I asked, have you ever deliberately looked at porn? And I think it was like 74% said yes or something. But that's 
ever once deliberately looked at it. That includes like when you're a teen and only 74% said yes. I don't, that's not the same thing as someone compulsively using pornography. And I think a lot of these stats are overblown. When I look at the methodology of a lot of these surveys, they're not actually that accurate. And the other problem is that they conflate things like lust and noticing a woman is pretty. Just because a guy notices a woman is pretty does not mean he's lusting after her. And we need to get that message across. Because I think that we're, they were setting teen boys up, especially for this horrible situation where they think, oh my gosh, I see that she's pretty, I must be lusting. When really, you can notice someone is pretty and then decide to do absolutely nothing about that. So I think that noticing is not lusting, and I'm going to be writing a post about that soon. But all of that to say, there was an interesting conversation in the comments about that between two people, a guy named Rick and a woman named Alice. And Rick was saying that I really needed to pay attention to the fact that surveys do show that the vast, vast majority of Christian men struggle with this. And then Alice said this, do you not see how knowing these facts and statistics could make a woman really, really cynical and cause her to have huge trust issues with the men in her Christian community? I mean, the fact that the chances are even, Stephen, that your pastor is doing porn on any given day, yuck, just super yuck. I have been dealing with the fallout from this sort of thing for decades. This also means that a huge portion of the Christian or church men that we deal with every day are very accomplished liars as well. Another sick making thought. And I completely agree with Alice. I think our whole conversation around lust really needs to change. You know, Rick then commented that the church is supposed to be a place where we're honest and all sin is sin, gossip is sin, gluttony is sin, lust is just another sin. And I said, I I jumped into the comments and I said a lot of things that that you can read. I will link in the blog post on this podcast with this Facebook post that you can read all the comments because they are very interesting. But I want to read Alice's last comment. And she says, I get what you're saying about sin and everybody in a church being on a level playing field with God, but please try to put yourself in my place. If I'm standing around chatting after the weekly church service and I stop to say hi to the pastor or a guy who's in my husband's small group or whoever, I'm standing there with my 15-year-old daughter by my side. I do not feel threatened by a man who struggles with a sin of gluttony, but I do feel threatened by the thought that there's a 70% chance I'm talking to a guy who uses porn. I just do, because I know that it is eroding his ability to see me and my daughter as human beings. I think that that is just such an important point. And I hope that some of the people that are writing about lust will realize that this isn't an issue that women just need to get used to, that all men struggle. We need to reframe this entire thing. The biblical view of lust is that it is just another sin. It is not a special category of sin that people cannot get over. And the idea that women just have to get used to men lusting is completely wrong. We should expect that a redeemed man should not lust. That does not mean that we should expect that a redeemed man will not notice a woman is beautiful, but we should expect that a redeemed man will not watch porn and will not lust. Here's something that I said. If 80% of Christian men were tempted towards child porn, would we put up with it because it's 80%? Of course not. You know, we would say, full stop, that's wrong, the culture needs to change. And what I'm saying about lust is that the culture needs to change. If we stopped saying all men lust and started saying, in Jesus, you can defeat lust, it isn't its own category of sin. And if we stopped equating noticing a beautiful woman with lusting, We would raise men with far fewer hang-ups about lust and women with far fewer feelings like all men are leches, and I do think that matters. Of course men battle with lust, but 
it shouldn't be something that we can't defeat. And I think if we started talking about lust differently, and if we started raising boys to see that women are human beings and taught our boys and our men to respect women, we'd have a lot fewer problems with this. But no, I am not content to live in a church where all the guys watch porn and all the guys lust. I think we need to get real about this stuff, but I also think that we need to start expecting that people who are Christians will act like Christians and that we actually can defeat some of these things. Normally in the podcast this week, we do a millennial marriage segment right about now, but I'm suffering from a major time crunch because my cousin is visiting from out west and I'm about to go pick her up along with her four-year-old daughter and take them to meet Tammy's 11 puppies because how often do you get to meet 11 four-week-old puppies? So we're, <laughs> we're about to do that. So I don't have time to, to record millennial marriage, but I do want to try to tie together some of these aspects of this podcast because I think we were talking about different sides of the same coin. I believe that the guy who confessed to his wife that he was tempted by this other woman, I'm not sure that was a real temptation as much as it just was that he was attracted to her. And he wanted to honor his wife. And so he told the mentor and he confessed to a counselor. And then the counselor said to the wife that she just had to understand how a man's sex drive worked, etc, etc. But as we were talking about in the comment section, this is a really dangerous message for women to hear. Because we need to stop equating noticing a woman as pretty and being attracted to someone with actually lusting after someone or being in danger of having an affair. We're just treating it a little bit too seriously. And I think the the motive behind that is a good one. Guys are wanting to be pure for their wives. Guys are wanting to keep their thoughts pure. And that's wonderful. But when we heap all this guilt on men that even noticing a woman is lustful means that you're being tempted and you need to watch your temptations or you could fall, it makes them hyper vigilant. And then what happens is the guys feel, well, I'm doing everything I can, so there's nothing else I can do, so women just need to understand me. And then they end up putting all of this on women. So we get all these books telling women that all guys lust and we have to understand You know, that's what Emerson Egrich said in Love and Respect as well, that men have to be free to confess this stuff to their wives. And this counselor is saying this to this wife, too, that she needs to understand the guy's temptation. And it's just all got to stop. Some guys are just attractive, okay? Denzel Washington, objectively an attractive man. I remember watching The Notebook and then being freaked out when I realized that Ryan Gosling was 10 years younger than me. (laughs) You know, he's an attractive guy. I noticed that. My husband notices that Gal, I don't even know how you say her last name, Gal Gadot, who, who was in Wonder Woman, attractive woman. But that doesn't mean that either of us is lusting after those people or that we're entertaining fantasies about those people or anything. And I think that if we just got rid of some of this language that we used and we're just able to say, you know what? Yeah, I noticed that people are attractive, but I don't do anything else with that information and I'm not entertaining those thoughts in my head. Well, if that's where you are, you're not sinning. And this isn't something that we need to be constantly talking to our spouses about. And then to tie this back to the forgiveness segment, when stuff like this has been going on in your marriage, and I know that a lot of us do have husbands who honestly do struggle with lust and do have husbands that have struggled with porn, then yes, we need to get to a place where we can put this behind us after they have rebuilt trust. I hope this woman with the reader question can rebuild trust. I hope that pastors and counselors will stop talking about this in such a way that makes women paranoid, as Alice was talking about. Most of all, I just hope that we can build healthy marriages who are truly focused on caring for the heart of our spouses, because that is what I think God wants us to do. 
So thanks for joining us for this To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast. Please be sure to check out the blog at tolovehonoredvacuum.com where I always post extras on each podcast so you can go on little rabbit trails on the blog. Uh, and tune in next week because we're going to talk about arousal and we're going to get back to some more sex questions, which are always fun. See you later.